Well, it's very good to be here to share the Word of God and to be amongst friends. Um, thank you for your welcome. It's always a privilege to be able to open up the, the Bible. I want to speak to you tonight on the times they are a-changing. The times they are a-changing. Of course, the 1960s, some of us can remember, um, a time of upheaval, a time of upheaval and protests in many different parts of the world. And there was an expanding music culture, which much uh, came from Liverpool, but some came from many other places as well. And Bob Dylan was one of those well-known songwriters um, who penned the song which is on the screen, or at least one of the verses is on the screen. The lyrics you can see, come gather round people wherever you roam. And admit the, the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. And if your time to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone. For the times, they are a-changing. Now, since it was basically a protest song which was written by Dylan, then the waters that he was describing were problems, troubles, which maybe he saw on the horizon, which would come like a flood to drench. Well, less than a month after Dylan wrote this song, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And a period of turmoil, politically, was seen in the United States, which spread out uh, across the world. But I guess if that was then, what about now? If we look 50 years on from when this song was written, you'd have to say, wouldn't you, that the times, they are a-changing. So for us, the times are changing. The times are changing politically, for example. Now, there's hardly a week goes by when you listen to the news and somebody else has been sacked from the White House. Um, so what is going to happen as far as politically in the United States? Will President Trump survive his full term of four years? Will he go to eight years? What is going to happen politically? And what about the implications for his type of politics for the world situation, be it Korea or be it Russia? And what about the situation in our own nation as far as Brexit is concerned? And we don't go there as in terms of how we voted, but what is going to be the implications of Brexit politically? The times are a-changing. But they're also changing socially, aren't they? Who could have foreseen even 20 years ago that we would have had armed police patrolling a Christian convention, which was happening at Keswick this year? Who could have seen the explosion, for example, in social media and the impact on all of our lives? Yes, some of it good, but has all of that impact been good as far as social media is concerned? What about the changes, for example, in relation to defining marriage and sexuality and the legal judgments now that we see against Christians for standing on principle? The times are a-changing. And spiritually, with a younger generation growing up with 
very little knowledge, little or no knowledge of the Word of God. At the Keswick lecture last week, given by the principal of Tyndale College, one statement struck me. His talk was on, do we really need to defend the Bible? And in his talk, he said this, that the majority of seven-year-olds know that the Bible is not true because they've imbibed that from home, from school, and from the media, all telling them that it's evolution, all telling them that if there is a God, then there are many ways to God, so that the Bible is not true by the age of seven. And so we have all these changes taking place. And with those changes in social, moral, and even the Christian foundations of our nation, how important it is then that the church and individual Christians remain firm, anchored to the rock of Scripture and to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet there are pressures there are pressures and we can see it around us and maybe see it in ourselves. The pressures to accommodate. The pressures to accommodate to the changing culture and the prevailing attitudes and thought forms. Maybe you saw on television just this past week the man who went in a little rubber dinghy um, just offshore. But what happened? The wind took him out to sea more than a mile in this little child's dinghy so that he had to be rescued. He drifted away from the shore. And as I watched that on television, it just seemed an example of how strong the tide and the wind was to take a fully grown man out to sea in that way. So how do we ensure that we do not drift away? How do we ensure that we remain firm to the foundations of our faith? How do we prevent ourselves drifting? This is where the book of Hebrews really does help us. Because the writer to the book of Hebrews, it's unknown and people can conjecture who the writer was, is writing to Jewish men and women, hence the title, of course, Hebrews, who had themselves experienced great change. They had stepped out of Judaism. They professed faith in Jesus Christ. And that was a huge step for them to make. It was affecting every part of their lives. And some of them, at least are struggling to continue as professing Christians. They are in danger of giving up. They are in danger of going back to their old way of life, to stepping out of being followers of Christ and saying, we're going to go back to Judaism, go back to what we knew, go back to what was familiar to us. And we can see that as we work through the book of Hebrews that some are clearly in danger of drifting. 
Because the writer says in chapter 2, verse 1, give earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest you, we, drift away. So the danger is there. There is also the danger which he points out in chapter 6, for example, where there is no evidence of growth. That they're just back to the basics. There's no development of their profession of Christ. There's no evidence of growth. And there, there are those also, as he tells us in chapter 10, verse 25, who are stopping meeting together. Don't forsake assembling yourselves together as Christians, he says. So we can see all of these things just as we glance through the book of Hebrews. You know, but before we point the finger, we have to recognize how hard it was. It was so hard to be a professing Christian at this time, to swim against the tide. To be ostracized, to be ignored, to be persecuted for the faith. Again, I say, remember that these are Jews who profess faith while the majority declared Jesus Christ was not the Messiah. He was not the sent one from God. You are totally mistaken. You are wrong. But they'd embraced Christ and it said they wanted to follow him. But all the pressures that came day by day by day of being different, that wasn't easy. It's never been easy. And after all, if they were still practicing Jews, at least Rome would recognize them. They would be a legally recognized religion as Judaism was at this time, but not so Christians. And Nero was beginning to imprison and put to death believers of the way. And therefore, can you understand to some extent the pressures and that voice which was saying, give up, go back. It would be so much easier. And there were probably other reasons as well that we can deduce as we read through Hebrews why, if this message of Christ was true, were not more people embracing it? If the message is true that Christ came into the world to save sinners, surely this is the best news. Why, why isn't this being embraced by the majority? Maybe that was a thought. And certainly the thought was there. Christ had said he was coming again. But where is he? Surely we can expect him soon. He said he was coming soon. Where is he? Can he be trusted? And all these thoughts were in their minds. And it's in that context of observing individuals in danger of drifting, in dangers of going back, that the writer writes this book of Hebrews, full of encouragement, full of exhortation, but also full of warnings. Now, the exhortations are vibrant. They're there for us to really be able to grasp hold of. 
And so many of them start with the two words, let us. Let us. Now, I want you to picture a family walking up Malvama. I'm sure some of you have walked up Malvama. And uh, the children, after about two or three hundred yards from the car park, are saying, where's the shop or where's the ice creams or something like that. But of course, there are no shops and there's no ice creams going up Malvama. And it's about a two mile walk from the car park up to the top. And so here's dad saying, come on, let us do it. When we get to the top, there'll be something nice out of the rucksack. Let's go. Let's do it. So that's the encouragement. Let us. Or maybe a sporting example of a, a manager of the team. The team is 2-0 down at half time. And the manager gets the team. Let's get together. Let's do this. Let us. Well, as you work through the book of Hebrews, you find lots of let us. Just some of those examples. Chapter 4, verse 1, let us be careful, is what the writer says. Let us fear, but let us be careful is probably a better translation. Chapter 4, verse 11, let us make every effort. Chapter 4, verse 14, let us hold fast. To our confession. Chapter 4 verse 16. Let us approach the throne of grace. With confidence. Chapter 6 verse 1. Let us. Go on to maturity. Chapter 10 verse 22. And through to 25. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold on swervingly. To the hope we profess. Let us spur one another on. Let us not give up meeting together. And then that well-known verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Let us run with perseverance the race. There are many others, but they're just some of the let us seen throughout the book of Hebrews. Can you see what the writer's trying to do? He sees the danger and he's saying, let us. And then there are the warnings. Take heed. Be careful. Beware. We're not going to go through those. You can go through and you can find them throughout the book of Hebrews. The warnings that are there, the encouragements, but also the warnings. But then as we come to chapter 13, and I recognize it's been a very long introduction so it doesn't mean to say that the sermon's going to be that long. It just means that we needed the introduction just to focus our attention on chapter 13. Because as the writer comes to chapter 13, in my New King James Version, there's a heading, Concluding Moral Directions. And then above verse 7, Concluding Religious Directions. So he's got some concluding directions for the folk that he's writing to. Those initial verses of chapter 13, he's really exhorting them. It's a lot about exhortation in this book. He's exhorting them about loving relationships. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Keep on loving one another. It's a great exhortation, isn't it? And then he goes about loving strangers in verse 2. 
Don't forget to entertain strangers. And then in verse 3, it's about loving those who suffer. Remembering prisoners as if you were chained with them. Well, you'd have to love somebody if you were chained to them. And then in verse 4, about loving within the family. About marriage being so important at the heart of family life. There's a lot here about love. But then we come to verses 7 and 8. And I've got two very simple headings for you to take away. And two things to remember. Two things that the writer wants these people to always remember if they are not to drift from their moorings. Two things to always remember. Firstly, he says in verse 7, and I've put verse 7 here in the NIV. It's just slightly easier for us to unpick. The NIV says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their life and imitate. Now, if you want to continue in the faith, he says, there are three things you need to do. Consider, remember, and imitate. Those who spoke the word of God to you. You see that? You can see it's so important. Remember your leaders. Consider the outcome of their way of life. And imitate. Now, if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, you will know that in chapter 11, he's talked a lot about those who were leaders in the Old Testament. If you know the book of Hebrews, you'll find there in chapter 11, what's often called the faith chapter, there are references to so many of the Old Testament saints. There's Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Gideon and many, many others and Moses. And it's as if there was a portrait gallery in chapter 11. Now, I'm, I'm not into art. Some of you are. And that's fantastic. But if you're into art and you went to an art gallery, you would stand and look at the picture, wouldn't you? And you would try to understand it. Now imagine in chapter 11 of Hebrews, you've got this art gallery, and here's Noah, and there's Abraham, and there's Isaac, and there's Moses. There's Isaac, there's Jacob, there's Joseph, and so on. And as you stand before those pictures, which what is what Hebrews 11 is doing, did Noah have it easy? He was laughed at. Laughed out of court. He said it was going to rain. But there was no rain. And he built this great vessel. He didn't have it easy. And then there's Abraham. God had promised him a son. But he was old. There was no son. But then God blessed him and Sarah with a son. And then God asked him to sacrifice his son. Look at the picture of Abraham. Was that easy? And Moses, aged 80, 
called from the backside of the desert to go down and lead the children of Israel out of Egypt? Was that easy? And Isaac, he didn't have a particularly coherent family, did he? Esau and Jacob always at war. And then Jacob's family, that was a bit of a nightmare at times. Family life. Just look at the pictures in Hebrews 11. So you have Hebrews 11. And then you get into Hebrews 12 verse 1. And the writer says, we're surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses. Just look at them. And they're all cheering us on. They've made it by faith. Despite all their difficulties. I don't know if any of you watched the 10,000 metres last night on television. It was a fantastic race, wasn't it? And uh, Mo Farrow cheered on by the crowd. The crowd gave him that energy, it seemed. The crowd was just so noisy. And on that last lap, when he tripped, not once, but twice. But he kept going to the end. And in a sense, that's the picture we have. Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. But the writer is saying in verse 7 of chapter 13, that was then. You didn't know those leaders. What's going to drive you on is to remember your leaders. Those who spoke the word of God to you. I've said on a number of times, I think, over the years in Belvedere, that one man who drives me on even now in my Christian life is a man who hardly anyone's ever heard of. He was called Albert Falaise of Morocco. I was 18. I heard him preach, and he was 80 years of age, and he was just inspirational to listen to in his testimony of how when he was in his 20s, he was called by God to serve the Lord in Morocco. He was newly married, went and learnt the language for three years. His wife became pregnant. They were overjoyed at the thought of being a little family there in Morocco. But in the final weeks of her pregnancy, things went wrong. Medical help was very difficult. And in childbirth, the baby was born stillborn. And his wife died as well. And in the book, he describes how one of the very first things he had to do in conducting a service in Morocco was to bury his wife and child. And where would there ever be hope again out of that? And for six months, he came back to the UK really seeking and questioning God. But the Lord showed him that his mission would be to go back to Morocco. And he went back, and for over 40 years, he served the Lord in Morocco. And that, to me, as I met him, after the many years he'd served the Lord, was inspirational. A man who, through trials and difficulties, had gone on and was now wanting to really help younger Christians and that was what I really benefited from at the age of 18. But there are others that you can think about, aren't there? There's hardly a week goes by in our house, probably hardly two or three days, when we don't listen to an MP3 from Stuart Olliot. 
We thank God for them. And we listen to them because 30 years ago or so, that was the foundation of our understanding of the scriptures. And that inspires. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. And you can all think of those who spoke the word of God to you and the verses saying to us, consider the outcome of their way of life and as you can, imitate their faith. I'm sure we could think of many. I'm seeing Paul here tonight. His dad, Colin Rivers, was a great inspiration to me. Not necessarily speaking from the front, but just encouraging younger Christians. And I'm sure there are many others from Claire, who has gone to be with the Lord, who through many years has just been that inspiration. And I know this verse is primarily saying those who spoke the word of God, but people speak the word of God also by their lives. And we can be inspired by that, to go on in our faith. Remember your leaders. But of course, the best of men are men at best, aren't they? And we all know that there are those in leadership and in church life who have changed course, who have deviated, who have departed from the faith or even denied the faith, if not in words, then in their actions. So here is something then that we must always remember, even over and above remembering our leaders. And it's, we must remember, verse 8, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. To remember him, to consider him, to imitate him, because he will never let us down. He will never walk out of a church. He will never go and say, I don't believe. Remember the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I tell you that in a world of change, in a world which is constantly changing, to know that there is a rock, to know that there is someone who is unchanging, is a relief and a strength to our souls. So in looking to any leader, we must look beyond the leader to the one who saved them. Who called them, who is their rock, and the one who is their leader. You see, this letter to the Hebrews is ultimately all about Christ. Isn't all the scripture ultimately about Christ? But this letter is all about Christ. It starts with Christ. Chapter 1, Christ, the creator, the sustainer of the world. And it ends up with Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in between, you can find that we have Christ, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you have weaknesses? Well, the passage says he sympathizes with our weaknesses. And he's able to save completely, says chapter 7, those who come to God by him. Have you come to God? Are you sure? 
You can come to God through Jesus Christ. And that is what these people had professed. The danger of going back was there. But the writer is urging them, like he's urging us, to go on in our faith. Knowing that we have one who is the author and the finisher of our faith. He doesn't change. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the changeless and timeless rock of ages. So when the road is rough and steep, what do we do? Fix our eyes upon Jesus. For he alone has the power to keep. We are to fix our eyes upon him. In the prayer earlier, Graham used the words of turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And then the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Isn't it great tonight to know that in days of change, we have one who doesn't change? Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and not only tomorrow, but forever. Well, the times are changing, but he never changes. And upon that, we need to build our hope.